and we just want to spread our sickness to the world. If you're done watching this movie, you just want to take a bath. Here's a Japanese samurai sneaking on with a duel. Just an old second hand man. He'll buy your old days from you. He will take every sorrow of the day that is through. And he'll bring you tomorrow. Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. On tonight's episode, we're reviewing three horror mockumentaries. Well, obviously, we, we say at the start of every episode that we, we talk about horror films. We haven't talked about horror films in far too long. Yeah, we did one last year around the Christmas period. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure we've done one since then. We did one about weird films. Yes, yeah, and that was probably the last one we did. I think so. And it is New Year again. So, Happy New Year, listeners. Yes, Happy New Year. Yeah. Whoop, whoop. So, what do we mean by mockumentaries? Yeah, we're supposed to be asking you that question. <laughs> I, I was asking you guys. Is it a no. mock documentary, Scott? Is that it? Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, I thought it, that was it's, it. It's, it's a word that was coined, as far as I know, in This Is Spinal Tap. Uh, okay. Actually, no. Uh, it, it was it was coined for this is Spinal Tap because in Spinal Tap they refer to it as a rockumentary, but uh, I think okay. I, I think that was the first film that I saw discussed uh, in terms of being a mockumentary, and obviously I think you know the use of the word rockumentary in there led to mockumentary. So what we mean by mockumentary is a fictitious film or fictional film that purports to be a documentary but really isn't. That you know it, it is a made up story in the guise of a documentary. It seems like some of the found footage films, I mean, thinking of something like Blair Witch Project, would that fit into this category for you? Yes, I think so. It's a slightly different approach to the three films we're looking at tonight, but it's I, I suppose it's not an hugely different from at least one of them. Yeah, I mean, with some found footage, that the, the conceit isn't about making a documentary, but, I mean, with Blair Witch, it is. It's the documentary about going to look for the Blair Witch. Yes, and, and in a number of cases, it's you know crews setting out to make documentaries or TV episodes, and things go wrong, and the way they go wrong becomes the horror story, and so on. With these, certainly with at least two of them, you know the the basic premise is still very much part of the horror film. I mean, they they still set out to be about horrific subjects, and it's not just uh, that things have gone a bit wrong. I would also say that some of these, without giving any spoilers at this stage would have to constitute found footage. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, at least one of them. I'm still somewhat, still somewhat in a little bit of shock. Have you actually said something vaguely positive or at least got through a whole statement about the Blair Witch without being completely derogatory about it? <laughs> Are you sure oh, you're Scott? Yeah. No, no, I, I was agreeing about the format. It's still a shit film. Oh, there we go. Right, that's... <laughs> it's no paranormal activity, is it, Scott? No, but then again, what is? What is. Even Paranormal Activity isn't. The sequel and the third one and the fourth one. I'm going to watch those sometime. Don't waste your time. <laughs> oh, God. I, I, did, I did watch Paranormal Activity, the marked ones, recently. The marked ones? Yeah, yeah. there's a spin-off. Yeah. Oh, really? Just, be, just because I'd, I'd read a couple it's, of reviews. It's not a TV show, is it? Like, no, no, no. It's no. a film. It's a film. Okay. But I'd read a couple of reviews that said that, oh, even if you don't like the Paranormal Activity films, this <laughs> one's different, this you know, this one's good, and so on. It's a great premise. It's not. It's fucking shit. <laughs> if and you this is the kind of in-depth review you can expect here, <laughs> listeners. Yeah, we're giving you a taster. Yeah. We're going to break our reviews of these three films up into two parts. 
So we're going to discuss the films at a very high level, first of all. Not really go into an in-depth synopsis, but just talk about the premise of it and a few key points, things that interested us. And then we'll put a break in between. Uh, we'll you know, give you a warning when this comes up, and we'll probably use the opportunity to pimp ourselves for, you know, a bit for Patreon. Once that breaks over, then the gloves are off spoiler-wise. So if you don't want to have the film spoiled for you, or if you want to go off and watch a couple of them, then take a break at that point in the episode and come back and listen to the latter half afterwards. That is me, Rami. I'm a filmmaker, and I'm making a film about Ben. A man of many talents. He was a connoisseur of fine foods. A first-rate poet. A philosopher. And a composer. But what fascinated me most about Ben was the intensity he brought to his work. Ben was a killer. An extremely clever and creative killer. Almost to the point of genius, he could hit a moving target, sight unseen, and strike at a moment's notice. He was a consummate professional. He was quite a guy. <laughs> the first film we're going to discuss is Man Bites Dog. This is a Belgian film from 1992. It uses the format of a documentary film crew following a... I, I don't know what you call him. A serial killer, maybe. Uh, certainly a murderer, a thief, a criminal, possibly borderline gangster. As All of those things rolled into one, really. Yeah. 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 As he goes round his work, I mean, and and he really does see it as his work. And they're just doing this this fly on the wall documentary about him, uh, his life, the people involved in his life, his methods. It's done in a very low-budget, black-and-white, uh, gritty, handheld camera way that feels yeah, very, very real. It does feel very real. I don't think... I think maybe because they chose to use black-and-white, it serves to somewhat disguise the low-budget. And actually, I think it's quite nicely made. It's also French language. I don't know if there's a dubbed version out there, but certainly all the versions I've seen are subtitled, so be warned if you don't like subtitled films, this is subtitled. And very much a black comedy, for yes. the most part. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting film tone-wise, because it jumps all over the place uh, in terms of tone. It is unapologetically a comedy. It is very funny in places. There are you know, a number of things that are done purely for laughs. At the same time, it's really fucking dark. Yeah, I would have said it's more satire first, comedy second. That there are there are moments of comedy, but there's more exposition and there's more talking about subjects than there is comedy. Uh, I mean, one of the things, one of the, the little scenes that did actually make me laugh out loud was when they were in a, a big kind of factory or warehouse, and they're hunt he's hunting down a guy. He's got his, uh, Ben's got his his gun in his hand. And he's kind of got his back against the corner and they know there's somebody in there they're hunting and he, he puts his, his finger to his lips and says, shh. Oh, yes. And then he points up and starts discussing the pigeons on the roof. Uh, and then he and quotes the way they some mate. piece of, yeah. yes, the way they mate. And he picks up a feather and says, look at this. And he, he describes how it's got oil on it. Um, the, the male exudes to attract females. Yes, and... <laughs> with pheromones on it. And then, and then he quotes some piece of poetry about pigeons um, and it's just hysterical. <laughs> yeah, but it feels it, that sounds pretty ludicrous, and 
but in the film, it seems you're just kind of taken along with it. Really. Yeah, it's very I, well done. Well, I mean, Benoit as a character is very, I mean, he's cultured, he's intelligent, he's also very arrogant, self-aggrandizing, pretentious, mm. uh, and he, he's that that classic combination. I mean, we've probably all met people like this in our lives. These very, very charismatic people who, you know, as you get to know them, you discover you discover are actually thoroughly repellent and horrible people, mm-hmm. but they still have this magnetism about them. Benoit is this character. The first time we see him in the film, in the first second you know, of the film, he is uh, throttling a woman in a railway carriage. So that's our introduction to him. We, you know, we don't know him. You know, the first thing we see him do is brutally murder a woman, you know, with no explanation. Mm. And yet, you know, we're sort of drawn in as the film crew is into his orbit as the film goes on. Because I think when I first saw that murder, I thought that wasn't filmed by the film crew I thought it was a kind of an off-camera thing that was happening that we were being shown as the viewer and I didn't think the film crew were going to get drawn into the actual murders in the way that they are kind of complicit with Oh, yeah. I mean, their, their complicity grows throughout the film. I mean, they start off... I mean, obviously, they're complicit from the get-go in that they're filming him murdering lots of people. As this goes on, they're helping him move bodies, track down victims, you know, dispose of evidence. Uh, Quick quiz over drinks as to what weight ratio you need to uh, weight a body down when you throw it in a ravine. There's oh, a new oh, cocktail so. in there for you, Matt. Oh, yeah, I made a note of that. The dead baby, <laughs> the, the dead baby. yeah. Yes. yeah. Oh, the dead baby boy. That was it, dead baby boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, one shot of... Uh, one shot of gin, then a bottle of tonic water with one sugar cube tied to an olive, dropped into the um, dropped into the glass and wait until the um, the sugar dissolves. Yeah, oddly enough, yeah. I paid a lot of attention to that particular <laughs> part. Of it. Yeah, yes, and yeah. then the the one whose olive floats to the surface first has to buy the next round. Mm-hmm. Yes, coming soon to a convention near you. <laughs> <laughs> Might be happening. <laughs> yeah, Matt, Matt, we just want to guarantee from you that this is the only part of the film you're going to emulate. This thing's recording, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that didn't cause Ben any problems. We can follow you around with a microphone. Yeah, but there's going to be a spoiler section. <laughs> we know how this film ends. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yes. But you know, the, the, the whole thing about Ben being a, a repugnant character, it, it's, it's bizarre. I think... Partly because of the you know the, the way that you know we as viewers, particularly viewers of horror films and violent films in general, accept film violence, that the fact that he is a murderer and the fact that we see him killing lots of people on screen and disposing their bodies, isn't actually awfully shocking. You know, we if if you know anything about the film before going in and seeing it, uh, I mean, you know this is the premise of it. And some of the murders, yes, I mean particularly, I mean there's a few set pieces which are absolutely horrific, but. Yeah, on the whole, the fact that he is a murderer is perhaps one of the least shocking parts of his behaviour, I found. Personally, I found that there were a few bits, you know, about halfway through the film, where he starts getting into some fairly heavy-duty racist and misogynistic rants that I I suddenly found more shocking than, you know, any number of bullets being put in people's heads. I I must, uh, I can think of one scene in particular. The, um, where they kill the security guard. He's a, a North African security guard. Yeah. Having killed him, Ben I'd becomes... kind of forgotten this scene. I was wondering what you were on about, but that was kind of seven time, shades of wrong. Yeah. Time to test the myth. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Drop becomes, his trousers. Becomes absolutely obsessed with with you know with the, the myth about whether black men are, are better hung or not, and you know has to strip down the corpse to compare. Well, it actually, has one of the film crews stripped. Oh down. yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, and they become his lackeys. Really, the film oh, yeah. crew. 
there's also the fact that you know it becomes apparent as well that Benoit's actually bankrolling the film, mm. and you know th- this plays into uh, another aspect of Ben's character, which is uh, again unusual. He's not just um, a, a motiveless psycho killer. It becomes apparent fairly quickly that his main motivation in this is money. You know, this is his job. He talks about how he starts off every month by killing a post office. Does a worker. postman at the start <laughs> of every month? <laughs> That's right. I, I, and then basically steals his uniform and goes around, and he can identify all the pensioners who are getting their he pensions. He loves old people. Yeah, go, goes yeah. around to all these pensioners' houses because he knows they've got cash squirrelled away. Never find an old pauper. Yeah. Yes. And, and then he doesn't like well-to-do middle-class homes because they have credit cards but not cash. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. and as he says, yeah, but one of the film crew, uh, one of the film crew actually suggests to him that he takes the credit cards, and he says, "Well, you might as well just call the police now." Yeah, we've made this sound quite, you know, for all the violence, we've made this sound quite light-hearted so far, and yeah, you know, for certainly for the first half of the film, it is. But you know, there, there, there are t- so so, yeah. I mean, there are a couple of scenes then that really, you know, for me, change the tone when the film crew talk him into breaking into a middle-class home. For a start, it, it becomes apparent that you know, for the reasons we've just said he ends up killing this family for no profit and you know <laughs> it, it's it almost becomes sadder as a result that you know the, the, this this is a completely pointless death but what becomes very shocking is the fact that there's a child at home and the child almost escapes and he uses the film crew basically to capture the child and finish the job but um, again as he, he sort of st- they ask him if he's killed children before and he's like well i've killed one or two but there's no profit in it yeah, yeah, he's got no moral objection to doing it. It's just well, you know, he talks about the you know that and and kidnapping and so on. That it's just basically not worth the hassle. Yeah, mm. too much time, not enough payoff. Yeah, uh, and and too much attention, too much risk. Well, the film turns really dark, though, and this is, I suppose, the thing that we should warn people about before they actually watch this film, is there is quite a graphic gang rape scene later on where. Ben uh, leads the film crew into breaking into a flat. I think it's New Year's Eve or something after they've been out in the piss. Yeah, I think so. And just break in, find a, a young couple there, you know, kill the man, or no, make the man watch while they, they, they rape his, his, his girlfriend. Yeah, that was um, a very unpleasant scene. Yeah. I'd say it did kind of stand out. I've, I've very nearly turned it off. Very, yeah. very nearly turned it off. Yeah, it, it is a, a horrific scene. I don't know whether it's an essential scene, but I think it's in terms of setting our opinion or subverting the opinion that we built up about what we're seeing and challenging it it's it's quite an important one that you know that, that, that we as viewers have sort of become complicit a lot in this and the sort of it, it's almost you know to me at this point the filmmaker's saying you know this is what you're watching for entertainment welcome to glen echo a picture postcard community that is itself representative of a thousand small towns found all across america But is there a brand of unspeakable evil set to shatter the serenity of this rural haven? The same brand of evil that has plagued a host of similar communities for the better part of 30 years. The stories are well known. At Crystal Lake, a madman named Jason Voorhees has killed dozens over the past three decades, leaving a devastated, deserted community fearful of his next appearance. Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon from 2006. Yeah, this is an American film, and it's it's probably out of the three films that we're we're looking at at the moment the most conventional in terms of being a horror film. And that said, it's it's still a pretty weird film in terms of some of the storytelling, uh, and particularly in terms of the way it's shot. It's it, it's the most slickly shot out of the three films, and uh, it, it's certainly got the highest production quality out of the three. 
It's interesting that when I first heard of Behind the Mask, you know, 10 years ago, when, uh, whenever it was first announced, when I heard the premise of it, I thought, you know, it's, it's just going to be Man Bites Dog again, isn't it? But it's actually something very different. Yeah, whereas um, Ben is just a a killer that kills for profit and kills to make a kills to make a living. <laughs> the irony in that. Um, <laughs> this is what would happen if you're following the likes of Jason Voorhees or um, Michael Myers. I, but it's more than that. It's it's a very conscious deconstruction of these characters, and not just a deconstruction in terms of the films. The character Leslie Vernon is is fascinating. He is um, he, he is someone who has modelled himself on you know all these great slashes, and is trying to aspire. Uh, it, there's this sort of hidden history behind all these other films that that links in. That there you know that, that there's been this. This sort of conscious attempt on the part of various people to turn themselves into bogeymen, uh, to become the nightmare that terrifies a particular community as a transformative experience, as a way of of elevating those who survive uh, to a form of heroism and goodness uh, to which they they would otherwise not reach. I think they say, he says in there that they are the darkness that makes the light stand out the more. Yes. In a perverse way, it's actually sort of a noble thing that he's trying to do in a very kind of fucked up way. Yeah. The documentary begins by telling us it refers to these other serial killers, Jason Voorhees and uh, Freddy Krueger and so on, as actual real people. Yes. So we're immediately kind of buying into, oh, I can see what's going on here, I think. And then we get Leslie Vernon, who, you know, whilst we haven't heard of him, he's a, you know, he is the star of the show. Yes. And yeah. we're, so we're seeing behind their lives and how they go about orchestrating all this chaos that they 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 do and that's that's probably the best part of the film for i me. think so mm-hmm. it's like as with most good ideas i think once you start watching it you go oh why has no one ever why, done this why, why yeah. didn't i think of this it's a great idea and, and it also means that yeah actually some of the ludicrous shit that they pull on some of those outlandish slasher films could be done it just requires a hell of a lot of prep and a yeah. hell of a lot of and exercise a lot of, a lot of preparation as you say so we see him in one of the early scenes sitting outside a school um or a college he's sat in the, in the front of the car looking at the kids and saying oh yeah maybe maybe her and him and and those guys they make a good group and they're saying yes. what what you choose the you choose your victim group up front and he said well yeah you don't think I'd just do it at random do you yeah. what am I crazy <laughs> <laughs> yeah you got to prepare these things and he's he's looking at the social misfits and sort of saying no no not those guys because they you know they don't hang around together it's got to be a tight knit group mm-hmm. um, I think that one look at her she's obviously. You can tell, right? Yeah, she's final girl material. <laughs> you you can see she's a virgin, right? Oh yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the, the film crew are like, "What? <laughs> you can tell by looking." It's not just that, but it's also uh, all the craft that he talks about learning to prepare for this. Uh, the fact that he spent you know years studying stage magic and you know uh, ways of of disappearing and one of my favourite bits uh, the the amount of fitness that goes into uh, keeping up with people and making it look like you're walking while they're running away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. All that cardio. Oh. <laughs> 
the fact that he's picked out, well, he's built up this legend around himself and the character that he's going to inhabit, all these urban myths surrounding it to try to make it all the more horrific. And, the, you know, he's picked out this location where it's all going to happen. And then, you know, he's going around preparing it all like mm. you know, some kind of evil Halloween haunted house. Yeah, nailing windows shut. Oh, mm. th- th- there's that wonderful bit about, uh, you know, wh- why does no one ever try breaking a window? I, I don't know, but they never do. Yeah, <laughs> They only ever do that on the top floor. Don't ask me why. <laughs> and when he does do the top floor, he, he climbs up a ladder. And, and soars through the branches just enough so that when they do try and climb out the top floor windows and get on the branches, they'll snap and they'll <laughs> fall to their death. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, but it's all the things that you see in the horror movies that you kind of buy into, but this explains why they happen in those slasher films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Genius. And like, why does the power happen to go out at this particular moment? Oh, why is it's it, Matt? planned? Yeah. Because it's planned that he knows that the reaction of, oh, this is going to happen, so A leads to B leads to C, and I've got a remote control to do it. Yeah. <laughs> There are similarities with with Man Bites Dog here in that the character of Leslie Vernon is this superficially charming character who, you know, again... Well, he's a bit more complicated than Ben in Man Bites Dog because that superficial charm actually does seem to be a real part of him, not the facade that it is in Ben. But it seems to be more the fact that his monstrous persona is something that he turns on as part of what he's aspiring to, that it's something that he invokes in himself. Also, when he puts on the mask. Yes. Because mm-hmm. uh, at one point he takes a gunshot and he, he's talking about it afterwards to the film crew and they say, didn't that hurt? And he's like, no, not really. I had my mask on at the time. Well, no, so no, he can he, be shot well, when he's he got the mask on. Well, no, he, he had a bulletproof vest on. That's what he was saying. He had my, he, I had my oh. vest on. No, I thought he said he had the mask. No, on. no, no, it was the bulletproof Am I wrong? vest. Yeah, yeah, no, he was. No, he was saying that he had he had his vest on, that it was a bulletproof vest. Oh, I misheard that then, because I thought it was quite cool that he got <laughs> his mask on, and that's why things didn't hurt him as much. Oh right, I thought yeah. it was some kind of like um, kind of esoteric effect. No, no, okay, <laughs> well, I totally mind, misconstrued mind over, that then. Mind over matter. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my version's better. Whatever. Yes, yeah, yeah no, I, do I like your that. version. <laughs> You've got this whole idea of the, this film crew becoming complicit in the things that he does. Again, you know, the, this is a group of people who know that you know, Vernon is going out to murder a lot of people and want to make a documentary about it. And uh, again, it explores the idea of complicity, but we'll, we'll get into you know, that in a bit more detail, I think, mm-hmm. when we get to the spoiler bit, because the way it's handled is completely different uh, from Man, Man Bites Dog. I was going to say, two very, very different directions. It takes a similar premise. Yeah. My name is Eric. I'm the maker of the Sandman series. I sort of follow them for a little while and see how they look on camera, you know, to give them like a screen test kind of thing. Uh, and uh, yeah, without telling them. Our third film is Sandman, which is written in a curious manner. It's S ampersand man, an American film made in 2006. Well, it starts off, it's made by a guy called JT Petty, who's made a number of horror films before. He, he started out with a, a, a really kind of creepy ghost story called Soft for Digging, uh, a Lovecraftian horror film uh, set in the Wild West called The Burrowers, and uh, a horror action comedy, which is quite a lot of fun, called Hellbenders. Sandman is... Well, I, I don't know how much of this is true and how much isn't, but apparently, you know, at least within the film itself, he explains that he started out trying to do a documentary about a peeping Tom that had been active in his neighbourhood when he was a kid. Uh, this voyeur who used to go along uh, and videotape people in the neighbourhood through their windows and had this huge collection of, of videos that he shot. 
he, he set out to do uh, a, a documentary about this, but hit a couple of barriers. One is that the chap was never actually prosecuted, because apparently when it came round to the trial, no one actually wanted to bring charges against him because they didn't want the films that he'd shot to turn up in evidence and be shown publicly. Now, is that a real story, do we think? I mean, it I sounds like it's quite credible. Yeah, um, I, I, the, the truth is, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I did, I did check that on IMDb and a few other sources, but I couldn't actually see any indication one way or another. He, he then goes to a, a, a kind of a fright fest type movie convention and interviews some of the filmmakers. Yeah, lots of independent horror filmmakers. I, he, he, the, the, the film changes into a documentary that is really about the underground horror movement in the US, independent horror filmmakers, and the kind of fandom that they acquire, uh, the sort of rather strange transgressive uh, films that are coming out that are only distributed on the internet and, and you know, DVDs at uh, conventions. And the feel of the film is is much more amateur than the the previous two uh this yeah. this feels very much more like just one guy with a, a camcorder in his hand going around interviewing people you know like um one might for a podcast yeah. um <laughs> well I, and and you know the reason for that is that's exactly what it is I and mean, it's it's not just that that's what the film appears to be that's what the film is right you know the, 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 the most of the people that he's interviewing are actually you know real filmmakers he interviews a, a forensic psychologist a sexologist uh, an academic uh and a few other people uh, a screen queen uh and talks to all of these people about horror films about the process of making these rather transgressive horror films and what people look to get out of them but these are real interviews i think perhaps one of my issues with it was that you had told us it was a mockumentary but i was a little confused when watching it because at first i thought these things are all fictional um because it seemed not they seemed incredible you know they seemed like they, they probably just were made up for the film but then when they had carol clover the author of uh, men women and chainsaws on a book um about gender in horror films i kind of figured oh actually i know well i don't know her but i know she's a real person and i know this book is real so hold on is the rest of the stuff real and i'm loath to criticize that too much because it's pretty cool when love hp lovecraft references real books in his stories alongside the Necronomicon. Uh, spoiler, that may not be real. Um, but, um, yeah. Take, I, take that back, Paul. Take um, that back. Say it like it is. Yeah, I was just a little confused if it was supposed to be a mockumentary. I was thinking, well, which bits are mock and which bits aren't? But that's that's actually deliberate. I mean, that, that, that to me is a feature, not a bug of the film. The mm. fact that... I mean, oh, my with, face with, is saying not convinced. <laughs> Without giving too much away, all but one of the uh, the people that um, JT Petty interviews for this are real people. There's one that is a character. Except I, th- I thought it was somewhat fairly obvious. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it becomes pretty obvious to begin. But I mean, but the thing is, it becomes fairly obvious. But it's what one of the creepy film things about the film is. It's not quite as obvious as you'd like it to be. I thought it was actually re- it was actually deliberately and physically signposted. Yeah, so they, they, they were, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was that obscure, Scott. No. But weirdly, normally when people are being interviewed, they seem real. Some of the people in the actual documentary parts of the film just seem like they were acting quite badly. Yes, to <laughs> me, very. to my eyes, and the sexologists, I, I didn't really buy. Yeah, but but apparently but, uh, they're real. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the, the bit for me that made me question whether uh, whether the guy had actually been to acting school or not was the 
uh, the director when we were taken out to the bar that you get uh, you get oh, a drink yeah, but- and a, a DVD of his for a discount rate, and then he was filming, a, he was shooting a uh, scene of one of his films in the bar with this girl on the floor looking very, very bored while yeah. he was just having one bud after another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that that was uh, a guy called Billsy Bub, apparently. That's, oh, yeah. yes, yes. I've not seen any of his films, and I feel completely unmotivated to do so. But he's apparently made such cinematic masterpieces as uh, Jesus Christ, Serial Rapist. What's interesting about this film, uh, to me, is that more some of the questions that it asks. I mean, the, the premise, I think, is quite a strong one. But it's it, it's all about this grey area between, you know, what qualifies as a horror film and what is, I, I guess, for want of a better word, pornography for some people, what is sexually titillating material for very, people with various paraphilias. Uh, and particularly when it's getting into that uh, th- that area of of uh, sexual violence, uh, sexual violence seems to be quite a strong element in a lot of horror films, and particularly in these underground films, they do seem to be filled with rape scenes. Mm-hmm. The interview with the Scream Queen, whose name I can't remember, I, I should have made a note of it. I mean, she talks about some of the custom work that she does, and the fact that she's you know basically aware that people are doing this because it ties in with their fetishes and so on. For me, it actually becomes quite disturbing. I mean, you know. All right, it's it's a harmless outlet, uh, but at the same time, it's. Uh, I, 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 swore, I guess the film's sort of asking it, you know, at what point does it start pushing over into reality? Well, I think it's very much a blend of bondage, sadomasochism, and a fictional horror film. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, 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 the actual real films that these people in the documentary are actually making in real life people are i think watching it for sexual gratification without doubt um yeah well i mean this is something that that i first became aware of back in the 80s i remember i i mentioned this to to paul and matt when uh we first watched this but back back in the the early to mid 80s i lived in new york and i remember i I used to buy fangoria from the forbidden planet there fairly regularly one of the things that i noticed in there that used to creep me the fuck out uh was in the classified ads and i saw a few variants of this and there were people who basically uh in you know in these pre-internet days used to trade videotapes of what they considered to be the best bits of horror films and there was this this sort of code phrase i remember from uh these adverts of you know people looking to trade these tapes which was just the phrase sexy female deaths and i just remember those three words just you know sent cold chills up and down my spine just the, you know, the the thought of people sitting at home masturbating over what they considered to be sexy female dance i mean it's i i, I don't know it just it, it was one of these questions where one of these times where i started questioning what the fuck is it that i'm getting out of this why do, why am i so drawn to horror films yeah and uh it, it suddenly started making me a bit uncomfortable that was one of the things that made me think that Sandman was a particularly interesting film because it was one of these these things that did make me question what it is that that draws people to that. And yeah, I, I, I've watched some fairly unpleasant stuff myself over there. There is an appeal to those, though, of the kind of forbidden fruit kind of thing. Yeah. You hear about this kind of obscure video nasty, a little bit like a Serbian film or um, mm. uh, The Centipede, Human, Human Centipede, Centipede or, things or, like that. Or Jörg Book Wright's films. Yeah, maybe. And, um, <laughs> and, and um, there's kind of a, ooh, you know, that sounds pretty out there. Maybe I should go and watch that. 
Yeah, I, I, and I, I guess there's a number of different reasons why you're, I mean, you're drawn it, to something like that. I mean, yes, part of it is testing our limits. Part of it is, you know, just wanting to see how far these things can be drawn. Or be part of an exclusive club that's seen them and be able to talk about them because you know they're going to be discussed. Yeah, yeah, but but yeah, you know, when when it starts getting into you know stuff that is really gruesomely realistic, it, it strikes me that there's something else that's in there that's in all of us that draws us to this this horror this unpleasantness that we do want to see death we want to see well i'd question that the blood and gore and viscera i'm not sure about the term brutally realistic because a lot of those things aren't very convincing and actually actually that's one of the points that that sandman makes when you actually see this on the tape these these purportedly real deaths they are actually completely unspectacular and quite unconvincing i thought well i mean that's the thing i know thanks thanks to the internet i mean i've yeah i've seen a fair few videos of of people you know dying under real circumstances and those the 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 fake deaths in those sandman things actually convinced me more in terms of the the real footage of death that i've seen than any fake stuff i've seen in yeah, death, death is lacklustre, yeah. at mm. least under those um, under those contexts. So no, no, those actually seem to be disturbingly plausible to me, just simply because of how mundane they looked. I think the other interesting thing about this, much like Leslie Vernon, and a bit differently from Man by Stock, is this is very much a slasher movie in the guise of uh, a documentary. There's much more documentary surrounding it than there is in Leslie Vernon, but... A hell of yeah, a lot more. Yeah, but at, at its core, I mean, you know, particularly once it builds up towards the end, that it really is a slasher movie. It's also, I'd say, a slasher documentary, really, because a movie has a plot, a movie has a conventional structure to it this is a documentary in its structure just with yeah. these little episodes of fiction the, thrown the, into the, it. that build up towards a, a storyline that's threading all the way through mm-hmm. but yes yeah yeah it's uh, not being somewhat derogatory to it but i did find it quite boring in a lot of places really? because it was because it did follow a documentary format i was hoping for more entertainment oh i'd, right. I'd second that Matt. yeah oh I, no i, 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 I start, found, I found my concentration kind of wavering up to about halfway and then it did kind of pick up but the other thing we should say is it's pretty challenging watching in places yes. there's some really unpleasant stuff in it because it does show some of these films or uh, clips from some of these films that we've been mm-hmm. talking about yeah um yeah particularly once it starts getting into the august underground stuff and and some of bills above stuff and so on then yeah there's there's some really unpleasant stuff there yeah i'm not <laughs> going to be recommending that one to anyone <laughs> It's like you're almost being kidnapped and tortured doing the movies. Right, and we also have some good news for you listeners. Well, the 11th of January's passed us and we have a winner of our competition. Yay! Yay! Woo! <laughs> so, 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 gents, uh, uh, Scott generated a random number and pulled that out of our selection of those who had shared the post and... Yes, so yeah, yeah. Let, let, let us never speak of the dark magics required for, for producing this random number. <laughs> was it Dice, Scott? No, it wasn't Dice. It, it, it was actually a, a website which I think was called randomnumber.com. Wow. I've used that before. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so we had about, dark 50, magics. about about 50 people on the list. Uh, 52. That's pretty good. Well, we actually had more than that, but a couple of them worked for Cubicle 7, so I <laughs> took them out. <laughs> <laughs> you took them out? Oh, well, you've got to advance through the ranks somehow. Oh, I see, yeah. <laughs> I wondered how you got this job. Okay, so who was our winner? Da, 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 da. And the winner was Barry Stevens. 
Congratulations, Barry. PDFs are flying through the internet to you. Yes, congratulations, Baz. Hey, so. They will arrive via digital bikey soon. <laughs> the good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Every time we get new backers through Patreon, people who generously help fund the good friends of Jackson Elias and the very small costs that we incur, we like to give thanks. And we have two new backers this week. So I'd like to say thank you to you, Chad Bouchard. Well, so that's thank you to Neil McGurk. So yes, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much indeed. And just a footnote here, if you are a indefinite insanity backer or a permanent insanity backer, then you should have received something through the post from Jackson Elias this Christmas. Right, chaps, I believe that wraps up our spoiler-free discussion on these films. Uh, Dear listener, if you're going further into uncharted territory from here, you are going to get a lot of spoilers. Listen at your own risk. So again, let's go through the films one by one, but this time we'll take the gloves off, spoiler-wise. So, going back to Man Bites Dog. Before we started recording, you raised the point, which we didn't really address in the the spoiler-free section, whether or not this was a horror film. Oh, yes, yes. It's debatable whether Man Bites Dog is a horror film. I mean, it's certainly a black comedy, it's certainly a crime film. Satire. Yeah, satire. But I think... Yeah, there are a couple of scenes that do tip it over firmly into horror film territory, and that 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 gang rape scene for me was viscerally horrific. Oh yeah, no no doubt about it. Even when you're looking at the bodies left over afterwards, and they're just asleep on the floor, as when they've passed out from being so drunk. Yeah, we're getting into a whole what's a horror film? I mean, is yeah. uh, is Saving Private Ryan a horror film? Is Irreversible a horror film? Yeah, I mean, I'd certainly say parts of Irreversible do strain to horror film. It's certainly horrific. Well. Yeah, yeah. What for me defines a horror film is intent. It's not there, there isn't, I think, any particular subject matter you can point to and say that this is a horror film. It's much more is the intent of the film to evoke horror. For for me, it kind of straddled as a very similar kind of boundary that I felt when I watched Clockwork Orange for the first time. Uncomfortable, but not necessarily what I would call a horror film, but what I'd say is a very intense and very dark drama. Actually, that's a pretty mm. good um, comparison. Clockwork yeah. Orange, whilst the story is very different, things that go on in there and the kind of graphic quality of it and so on, it's, it's not a million miles away from that feel. Mm-hmm. Yes. The kind of mix of comedy and brutality mm-hmm. and the uncomfortableness of watching it. Yeah, and, and the fact that you're being drawn into the world of a charismatic psychopath. Yeah. I'm just glad that you haven't mentioned Funny Games yet, Scott. <laughs> I know the title vaguely. Oh, Mike, Michael Haneke, he's, he's filmed it twice, once in German, once in English. I've only seen the German version. Uh, I, I, I imagine it's one of these films that Paul and I will disagree with uh, each other about quite violently. Personally, I think it's an amazing film, and I, I, I can see that look on Paul's face. <laughs> kind of just nodding as if, yes, dear child, and <laughs> you can think that. <laughs> Thinking of the narrative purpose that that scene fulfills uh, links me into um, another point that when you're saying about the moment where the film tips over the edge for you, or at least it has a pivotal moment. 
it links back to the pivotal moment for me is when they encounter the second camera crew. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, that yeah. is weird. Yeah, it I, is. I yeah. just burst out laughing. I thought yeah. that was such a wonderfully uh, just structured moment when the yeah. fact that, oh, yeah, there's another serial killer out there. Of course there's going to be another fucking camera crew following. Yeah, that, that was a touch of genius, <laughs> I thought. But, and, and the fact that Ben gets his own camera crew to kill the other camera crew. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just nuts. It's linked to that because... Um, because that sets off the end game ultimately. Yes. That there's that scene, and when the uh, the rats start appearing in the mail. Yes. Oh, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. That it's ah, hang on a minute. There is a narrative plot going through here. There yeah. is some. This is going in a direction. You know, just blatantly signposted. You know where it's going to go. But it's the when it gets to the end, when the camera crew are gunned down, when he's gunned down by effectively the revenge killing for killing the other psycho. Yeah. It's specifically that at that point you do not care. They got their just comeuppance. They weren't victims per se. They yeah. got their justice sentence. But, but, carried but again, out it's, it's 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 interesting that you know, for you to feel that, and I'm not you know, I'm not saying this is anything about you because I, I I actually share that. But but for you to feel that, you had to have something as transgressive and, and nasty as the gang rape scene. The fact that he'd killed so many innocent people before, that he'd been murdering pensioners and stealing their money. Uh, the no, fact, no uh, I'm not talking about and, him. And so, or what, the film crew? Yes, that specifically their dying didn't gotcha. matter. But but even them, yeah, they, they'd, they'd killed the other film crew, they'd helped out with the murders of, of other innocent people, they'd just helped dispose of bodies, they'd helped destroy the evidence when the quarry started to drain. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and so on, so, I, you know, they they were not just accessories, at that stage they were active murderers, even before the gang rape. What he says before he ends up going into jail is that, you are my team, well, I'm supposed to be able to rely on my team, what the yeah. hell are you playing at? I don't think it's unusual for us to empathise with the baddie in a film, to take an example of No Country for Old Men, uh, Anton Chigurh, the, the killer in the film, we get through to the end. Oh my God, spoil! Well, we're talking spoilers here, so we're going to spoil this as well. Um, he survives, albeit you know badly knocked up. I went to watch that film with a friend, and he was quite outraged at when we came out. He felt it was a really unjust ending that the killer, the bad guy, didn't get his comeuppance. And I, mm. I really couldn't see his point. I was like, well, no, that was really fun. I, you know, I thought that was, you know, it was, it, it was. But, but also, that was part of the point of the film. That, yeah, it was know, about fate. The, the, yeah, and, the, 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 and that there are no just desserts. There, there are no happy endings. In, in a lot of cases, there aren't even no endings in life. I think often we do empathise with the killer or the baddie, whoever it may be. Yeah. And I think we do that in Man Bites, Man Bites Dog up to a certain point. Now, what that point is is going to depend on different people, and some people will take against him almost immediately. Uh, but I think because we appreciate kind of black comedy and we like horror films, serial killers have a have a kind of a um, a, and a kind of appeal to horror fans. Then we kind of like him at the start. Well, and and the fact that he is portrayed as as quite a charismatic, if as I've said before, yeah, he's, character. he's a kind of cod French intellectual as well. He's, yes, uh, yeah, yeah, quoting poetry and. Oh, all at the same time as he's shooting grannies for their pension money. Yeah, it's the oh. timing that's so funny. I was going to say, one of them he didn't even shoot. That, that was one, <laughs> one, oh, oh, we didn't yeah. mention that. that. Oh, yeah. That, that was one of the things I thought specifically was, this is clever, that the fact that he is such a shrewd observer. He walks into the room and goes, aha, heart medicine, therefore you have a heart condition, I can save a bullet. <laughs> it, it comes back to the whole thing of it being about money for him. Yes. The, the other thing that occurred to me as well that, that I found a bit shocking about the film, and again, this this is something that made me think a bit afterwards, 
you know, even though you you only see one of them, the deaths of his friends and family afterwards, the reprisal murders where, you know, the the, the girlfriend or friend has got a fruit a flute shoved up her ass, and, um, you know, with his mother it was a broomstick, though you never see that. And those deaths were, I don't know, for me, shocking in a way that the murder of his victims, with the, you know, certainly with the exception of the gang rape, that the murder of his victims generally weren't. And, you know, that... that Again, I found vaguely troubling. I mean, it, it was the fact that you know, we, we were drawn into empathising with, with uh, Ben and the camera crew, the fact that we saw the characters in their orbit as being sympathetic characters in a way that the victims weren't. So their deaths seemed to matter more and mean more than the entirely innocent people that Ben was going out and killing. And I think also more sinister because we didn't know who was doing them and they seemed quite realistic. Yes. I thought oh, you did kind of know who it was because it was signposted it's the Italian's brother. Yeah. Did we see oh, yeah. him? No, no you didn't, you never we, saw we never saw him. him. Yeah, no. No, 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 so he's kind of an yeah. unknown figure. He's kind of an off-screen... He's, he is identified, but he is not shown. Hmm. But uh, part of that as well might be the fact that we get the interviews with these supporting characters and we, mm-hmm. we, we get to like them as well. And, and one thing I didn't mention before, which I meant to, Ben's family in it are actually played by the actor's real family. <laughs> uh, and they <laughs> apparently the filmmakers didn't tell them uh, what the film was about um, because the actor and uh, the character have got the same name. You know, they were interviewing them about, they interviewing them about Benoit and they were just talking about their son and so on. <laughs> and yeah, it was just a nice blurring of reality and, and fiction. I'd read your comments about that, Scott, before I saw the film, so I, I kind of got that in the back of my mind when I was watching it. Uh, it still seems kind of odd, but it, it, those people did seem to give quite an authentic portrayal of the, their roles. Um, and, and, and that's why, because they weren't acting. that's why, yeah, because they weren't <laughs> acting, yeah. Well, the other thing, potentially, I was thinking of, um, that... Another impact the death of the family and those periphery characters has is that it shows you that up until that point he always refers to the fact that he only takes the people that won't be missed, the little fish, that Mm. he doesn't want to make a ripple. They are little fish, but they do make ripples for those that know them. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it shows that everything has consequences. Yes. And and that you know but the the fact that we haven't seen the consequences before is more an act of denial on the part of Benoit and the film crew. Mm Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks we just wake up one morning and start obsessing about a girl and start stalking her, killing everybody that gets in the way. That does seem to happen a lot with you guys. <laughs> Moving on to Behind the Mask, I, this is the most difficult of the three films to talk about without spoilers. Because huge, there, huge spoiler alert. Because there is such a big shift in the third act here. The, the, the point at which it drops the pretense of being a documentary. That point where they, the, the film crew put their cameras back in the truck and go off and try to stop the thing that they've been complicit in all along. And it suddenly goes from being this mock documentary into being a slasher movie. Even then to the point of... Are they really being complicit, or have they been part of it all along? And they know all of Leslie Vernon's preparations, so they know about the the axe in the woodshed that has got a weakened shaft. Oh, everything that he's shown them, and everything that he has deliberately shown them. Yes, I mean, so some yes. some of it has been act of misdirection. Was this part of the plot all along? Oh, well, of course it, it was. It's uh, yeah. plot. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, because the, the bit that nailed it for me was the where it says that, oh, the apple press, because someone's going to die in this thing tonight. He knew that it was going to end up with him in that. Yeah, he'd, he'd orchestrated the whole thing. He'd, he'd picked the... Uh, 
He picked the woman in the film crew as being his final girl. Uh, he had their roles all picked out for them. He knew what was going to happen uh, and calculated everything that was going to happen as, as soon as they got involved with the events in the farmhouse. And yeah, it, it was all part of his plan. Yeah, even to the point with, I'm going to leave a load of gas cans here and I'm going to deliberately paint myself up in fire retardant uh, paint. Oh, that was great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, fire brilliant. retardant paint, yes. Yeah. Oh, we haven't mentioned his nemesis either. Oh, the oh. Ahab. Yes. yes. I got me an Ahab! <laughs> oh, we also haven't mentioned his mentor. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the supporting characters in this are great. I mean, yeah, the the Ahab. I mean, they, the, the the fact that you do have this, you know, Robert England in this this Donald Pleasance in Halloween type role turning up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, trying to diffuse the situation. He was a psychiatrist as oh, well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it was an exact analogue of uh, what was it, uh, Doctor Loomis? From, I have no I think, idea. I think it's Doctor Loomis from the Halloween films, the Donald Pleasance character. But he, he first turns up in the library where Vernon, the, the killer has planted... I mean, this is a classic bit of Call of Cthulhu. One of the characters was actually doing library use (laughs) and uh, he plants a clue in the in the library just to to kind of tease her in tease her interest but yes of course the other great supporting character is uh, his mentor you know the the guy who's done the same thing as him you know back in the 1960s and has been showing him the ropes and that 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 lovely bit where you realize after you've met him and his wife a few times he mentioned something to his wife about you know how well she ran and on you hang on fuck he, she was his final girl yeah <laughs> yeah and the fact that oh well look look who i caught when yeah. she kind of like jabs him in the ribs <laughs> it's just a beautiful moment yeah. one of the things we touched upon where the um, we have a similar kind of premise in that we have a killer who's been followed by a film crew in the case of man bites dog you've got a film crew that ultimately sympathize and then be- almost become what they're filming um, they become very complicit in the case of Leslie Vernon, you've actually got a group that actively try to stop what he's doing. Yeah, and they've got qualms all the way through. Yeah, until the point point where he goes in and commits the first murder in the house, at which point they say, should we be filming this? And then, no, cut cut yeah. the film, we're cut, done. Not, not just cut it, but let's, let's actively try to stop it, and that's the point at which they, the they adopt starts. their roles. Actually, one of the few really chilling moments, I thought, in, in Behind the Mask, that bit where there's one of the, uh, the, the cameraman, I think, uh, at some point has tried to run away to draw uh, Vernon away from, from the others. And, you know, stumbles and falls, Vernon inevitably catches up with him and starts, you know, get preparing to kill him. He reaches up and he pushes Leslie's mask off and says, you know, Leslie, it's, uh, you know, it's me, it's me, come on, mm. we're, we're pals and so on. And you, you can see that, you know, even under the mask, Leslie's face is just dead at that point. He's just embodied everything that he was going to become. And that, you know, there's no going back for him. He is completely the character that he wanted to adopt. Mm thinking on the gaming perspective here, it's a good, um, I would almost say required viewing for anyone who wants to play the stalker, um, the dark stalker archetype in Unknown Armies. Yes, it is a very Unknown Armies film. (laughs) I don't shoot these movies to be a piece of cinema. I shoot it so perverts give me money. And lastly, we come to Sandman. As we've said previously, one of the characters that purports to be part of the documentary is a fiction and is actually the, the killer. Yeah, and that's Rost, the maker of the Sandman films, as we've we've pretty much stated already. And yeah, it's it's not really any great surprise because you know, as you pointed out, you know, the title of the film is Sandman. It's it's obvious, you know, even from the early interviews that he's a wrong'un. Well, there's a lot of in well not innuendo, but a lot of punning 
that goes on in them. Well, yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity where he's talking about his filming process and the way that he auditions the girls for his projects. Yes, where auditions he follows, as yeah. in stalks. And then they don't do another film. Yes, and, and yeah, at some can point... I talk, can I talk to any of them? No, 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 no. That, you know, I, I'll ask, but yeah. Actually, no, no, she doesn't want to talk to you. Not without a Ouija board. I think it was actually... Um, was it you that raised the point, Paul? That when when it came to the end, well, was it uh, was it real? Was it wasn't it? Oh, we got in yeah. a big conundrum about about because I was oh dear, how do how do we talk about this with using the terms real and not real? Because <laughs> I was saying it didn't seem real, and then and like, then Scott was saying no no that bit was real, <laughs> and I was saying well, it didn't look really look real, and then I, and then I made the point that. Yes, in the fiction of the film, the murder at the end was real, but it wasn't actually a real oh, murder. Oh, yes, yes. Would they get yes. away with distributing a snuff film, basically? Yeah, yes. pretty much. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, I mean, they, what happens basically is, you know, Rost, you know, a fairly disturbed character anyway, but he's trying to ingratiate himself much more to J.T. Petty as the, the film goes on. Petty and his crew, in turn, are obviously getting more and more alarmed by Rost's rather uh, creepy behaviour, the questions about, you know, how much of what he's doing is fake, whether he really is. I don't think at this point they've even accepted that he's a murderer, but they do accept the fact that he's a stalker. So they're trying to distance themselves from him at the same time as he's really trying to latch onto them, I think primarily for publicity, because he's looking at trying to get his films out to a larger audience. Oh, he and, is, yes, and make, yes. Making a film, yes. Yeah. yeah, wanting to collaborate on something, and yeah. And so it builds up to this this whole thing where he discovers a girl for you know his next project, and you start seeing a montage of this at the end, this woman that he's following around. And it's not until about three or four minutes of this, this montage of her following around that you see... He mentions at some point that she's got a boyfriend, and you see, you know, her at some point with J.T. Petty, yeah, there at uh, 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 kind of looking out over the sea or whatever, and it's oh shit, okay, yeah, he's actually stalking her, yeah, Petty's girlfriend. Uh, I and, haven't picked up on that. But oh yeah, that, that, that's that's the whole thing. That the, you know, this is his revenge. You know, sort of, you know, you're, you're going to stump me, right? You know, I'm going to kill your girlfriend and send you a DVD of it, and that's the end oh. of the film. Well, that's her. That's her yeah. that gets killed. Oh right. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm no. with you, Matt. I didn't get that. Either. No, I didn't. Because oh, right. you don't. I I never saw the guy behind the camera. That you, no, it wasn't the behind the camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. But but yeah. They, they, they were, he mentioned at some point yeah, about yeah her having a boyfriend and so on and and yeah you, you see her with J T Petty no, a few I, times. No, I, I get that bit. Yeah. But I didn't get the fact of the guy that you see um, them with is the. Um, Petty, because yeah. you've never you never really see him. Oh, in you, the do, film. you do you do a few times, yeah. I mean, a few. At the start of the films and in a few of the interviews, yeah. Yeah. All right. They, they, this this may then indicate why I found the ending more affecting than either of you, because <laughs> because I was one of the three who understood the fucking thing. All oh, right. Okay. And join us join us for the next episode when Scott explains another film to us. <laughs> yeah, hang on. How, how how did the usual suspects work again? <laughs> Something about a mug. Oh yeah yeah. I'm going to take your camera and I'm going to film you while I'm killing you. And listen, that wraps up our quite spoiler-heavy discussion on the three mockumentaries that we've looked at tonight. I mean, I, which I, which I, ones I was... would you recommend to people to watch? Well, it depends what kind of film you like. I mean, you know, this is a very subjective thing. I, uh, whether you're looking for something that's just pure entertainment, whether you're looking for something that's quite challenging, 
if you're just looking for pure entertainment, then yes, definitely behind the mask. Behind the mask, yeah, definitely. And also, that, if, that, you're, that if is... you're more of a, just a general horror fan that's seen some slasher films and just wants some entertainment, I think you can't go far wrong with that film. Yeah, it, it, it's well, it's got a the production value of it is is higher than the others. Um, it's more entertaining. Yeah. Stru- structure is yeah. better. It's it's got elements of comedy. It's tongue in cheek. It's it's generally just better on I, a whole load. And of it's fronts. a very it's a very clever film. What I'd say, I mean, out of the three of them, it's the least challenging film. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it is a oh, pure certainly. entertainment. Yeah. Man Bites Dog is a much more confrontational thing. It's yeah. Uh, behind the mask is yeah definitely an entertainment. Uh, Man Bites Dog is is really trying to rub your nose in some fairly unpleasant things, and mm-hmm. it's not shy about doing it. Yeah. It's- yeah, I'd agree with that. I enjoyed it for the most part. Yeah, I maybe wavered a little bit. It was a, an interesting film. Yeah, yeah there, there were bits of it I liked. Um, when I realised that, oh yeah, there is actually a story in here, then yes, I enjoyed it. But for the for the most part, nah. I did make the mistake of, and you might want to avoid this, listeners, is uh, I grabbed myself a sandwich and then came upstairs and was watching it during the, the uh, projectile vomiting scene when he's at the restaurant oh. and eats the muscles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. And that, that is possibly the most realistic vomiting scene I've ever seen on film. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I think actually the strongest of the three films, as I've said before, I mean, the film that I, I found the most affecting is actually Sandman. Uh, the, the, the mixture of reality and, and uh, artifice I found very clever, but I thought out of the three, it was the one that had the most to say. You know, for me as a long-term horror fan, it was the one that challenged most of my preconceptions about horror. It made me think about things in a different way, and I found it an absolutely fascinating film. It's not light entertainment. It's not a film you sit down and watch when you're in the mood for a straightforward horror film. But if you do want to be, you know, as I say, challenged a bit, I, I think it's a fascinating piece of work. I disconnected from it a little because I got preoccupied with trying to figure out what was real and what wasn't real and watching a documentary is one thing and watching a fictional documentary is another and the blending of the two without knowing which was which didn't really work for me. Uh, Whereas that's something I really enjoy. As I said at the top of the episode... We haven't really done this format of show before, so if you think this is an interesting thing, if you'd like to hear us talk about more, you know, say, uh, themed films over the course of an episode, you know, please let us know. I, you know, as I said, we don't need an excuse to watch horror films. We'll quite happily talk about them. If this is the kind of thing you want to hear, let us know. I don't mind having a good rant about a crap film if it's one that I really don't like. <laughs> Whereas I wouldn't do that. Okay, (laughs) so I think that wraps it up for tonight. So it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemoustomes.com